Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for checking into the best Houston sports podcast and the gorgeous face that's sitting here right next to me is none other than Barry Warner. You guys know him. If you have missed the Houston radio legend the last couple of years, it's because he was writing a fantastic new biography entitled What Else Off the Top of My Bald Head. Great to see you, Barry. Well, great to be on with you, too, my friend. And I understand last night you had uh, my quasi-son and partner, Sean Bijani, on. Oh, yeah. We're having a great time. We're doing a lot of these Texans post-game shows and uh, just having a blast with it. And he's planning to do a ton more with me this year. So we're going to be doing that on a regular basis. And, you know, you and I spoke a few years ago. And for anybody who missed it, I encourage our listeners to find our original conversation on the YouTube channel. But after reading your book, Barry, I realized we barely tipped the iceberg or touched the tip of the iceberg. I mean, you played golf and actually partied with Joe Namath. How does that even happen? Broadway Joe. Well, Broadway Joe came to Buffalo, New York to play in an exhibition game. He stayed over for three days because his best friend at Bama and teammate and chauffeur was Ray Abruzzi, who was the Bills starting safety. And we went out and played golf, the three of us, the third being Marty Schottenheimer, may he rest in peace. So Joe was just absolutely wonderful. The following season, off season, he had knee surgery, and I flew to New York, stayed with the Bruzy, and did a half-hour interview, three 10-minute parts to fill into my show. And he was always a gentleman. I was with him one morning till 3.45 in the morning, the last game of the 1964 season. He was drunk, 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 and drunk. The next day, the Bills were a nine-point underdog, and I said, Bills defense, they'll beat the snot out of them. Well, Joe the competitor sobered up in uh, the ensuing hours. The Bills head coach, Lou Saban, decided to rest his defensive starters, and the rest was history. I lost money. I got that money back the next week in San Diego, and that was the last bet I ever made, period. Yeah, Joe had a good feeling about uh, some particular games. The Super Bowl was, was one of those games, and he would even call your sister, Barry, when he came to Buffalo and leave tickets to the game for her, is that right? Yeah, no, he came to Buffalo and called my sister. She went over and had a drink with them, a perfect gentleman. And every time he came to Buffalo, he left two tickets for my sister. Oh, that's nice. One has to understand in those days, he was the Mick Jagger of his times. I mean, there was an electricity about him that whenever he stepped onto the field, Took it up another notch. Yeah. I mean, it was it was like Serena last night with a set change or a crossover coming off of a winning point and then moving on and feeling the adrenaline. You know, once she came back, there was that roar of the crowd that propelled her to win the next game. I mean, those are the dramatic things that you don't see in the box score, the subtle things that we as professionals recognize. 
Yeah. And you've, you've met so many incredible athletes cross paths with them, but of all the athletes that you've met, there's nothing cooler than the friendship that you had with the first American to fly into outer space, Alan Shepard. You met him at a special VIP tour of NASA back in the sixties. You weren't even living in Houston at the time. No. You say in your book and, and you hit it off with him and he was actually the best man at your wedding. But the story I, I'd love for you to tell here is what he told you. Well, when he it's a true story I, I can, can share with you and with the audience. Alan was the best man at my wedding, the best damn man I had met in that time in my life. Alan was tacturn like a Tom Landry. He was all business. But for some strange reason, when he and I got together, he let loose. He laughed. I could see the the smile in his eyes and his teeth, which few at NASA saw. I mean, he was a hard-ass naval lieutenant who just put the fear of God into all the other astronauts. What did he tell you, Barry, about, because you talked to him right after he went to the moon. What did he tell you about that experience? Because he drove over to your place to celebrate, I remember, after the moon landing. You can talk about that, too. But the story that he told you about seeing the Earth from the moon. Alan said, and this was a, a refrain from the other men who had preceded him to the lunar surface. The planet Earth from outer space looks like the sole Christmas ornament lit on a tree. It was that small. But you know the power of planet Earth. But from outer space, it looked like, please. And it was just a very powerful experience. And he also shared with me the part about UFOs. People want to know, is there life out there in space? And Alan just said, it would be cavalier of us to think that we are the most civilized planet. When you sit there and you look out that window and you see outer space and you see all these other planets, not named Pluto, Mars, Mercury, you know, et cetera, you have to surmise that they're looking at planet Earth like we're back in the covered wagon days. So no communication, no friendly beep, 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 let's talk. But was just a feeling that as great as we are as a nation, or as great as we were back then as a nation, there's a far greater presence out there. And and he drove over to your place to celebrate a few hours after the moon landing. Right. Opened up a bottle of champagne with a buddy of mine uh, who had a liquor store, series of liquor stores. We opened it, we killed it, and then when we called my father, who was a naval man, and Alan uh, invited my dad to his launch in January of 1970. And it was so special, I remember you talk about in the book, because you had watched Alan go up into space for the very first time with your dad, looking and dream, dreaming big dreams at that point. Yeah, it, it's just amazing what he did, and I remember my grandfather... I hear the story. He passed away about three years before I was born, but my grandfather actually came here for cancer treatment and lived down the hallway in the same apartment place as Alan Shepard. At the Mayfair High Rise near the medical center. 
That's that's the one. Couple of blocks away from the famed MD Anderson. Yeah, that's the one. That's the story that I hear. So my uncles and my mom remember uh, seeing Alan Shepard in the hallway and and tell his story. Uh, Let's get to an athlete that's uh, you talk about Alan Shepard going beyond into the moon. Well, this guy seemed like he could go anywhere, and that's Muhammad Ali. And there was a movie biopic, The Greatest, that was filmed here in Houston at the old Sam Houston Coliseum in the Astrodome, which I didn't even realize that they had shot so much of that here. Can, can you explain what you witnessed during the filming of the movie? Because this is pretty remarkable. There were two things. The first and foremost, uh, Lee would film. One of his actors in the film was the late Ernest Borgnine who had a prolific career of near misses for Academy Awards, but always had significant roles. So he was uh, portraying Angelo Dundee, Ali's trainer. And they would shoot a scene. Lo and behold, after a scene or possibly two, champ would call time. He'd get a cart, a golf cart, take him out to the wagon gate in center field, pick a blonde, a brunette, a redhead, whatever. You'd look out there and you'd see this trailer going boom, da boom, da boom. Ali was, uh, like he said, that's a part of my body that's got to be trained also. <laughs> and then come back and Borgnine said, look, I've worked with some of the leading handsome heartthrobs in Hollywood, and I've never seen anybody stop shooting in the you know in the middle, like Ali. And he said that is why they call him the champ. There was kind of a skirmish on the set between Ali and there was a, a little bit of an argument between him and uh, one of the guys that he was well known to have uh, fought in, in one of the big fights, right? Yeah, Ali could taunt you to death. I think it was Ernie Terrell that he refused to call him anything but Cassius Clay. And Ali pounded him in the submission. Yeah, yeah. And you also tell the story, Ali met Earl Campbell at Oilers practice, and I can't believe I hadn't heard that story either. What what happened? What went on was a, a very unique experience. On September 29th, 1979, Ali invited Chris Begala, who's was my intern, who's now a partner with Jim McGrath in a in a, a large public relations firm here in Houston, up to Ali's suite to watch Monday Night Football against the Cleveland Browns. So in the course of us watching the game, he said, tell me about that boy named Merle Campbell. So I started telling him, he said, I'd like to meet him. Can you arrange it? So he comes into practice. And all of a sudden, one by one, players, black and white, were running over towards Ali. Bums up in the tower looking down, and he sees what's going on, not knowing it's Ali. So he comes down and wonders, who in the heck is interrupting my practice? And he sees it's Ali. Now, Bum, at age 19, enrolled in the Marines and fought it at Iwo Jima. Ali, of course, a conscientious draft dodger. So Bum had a decision to make. Does he stop it, or 
does he welcome Ali, which was the wise move to do? Well, I did my commentary at 5.30 at night, and then I did another one at 7.30 in the morning. I had FBI threats. The phone lines at, at Kick Radio on Golfton from the Southwest Freeway all the way down Golfton, all the way to the loop were knocked out with that many hated, hatred messages towards me. For 72 hours, I had police bodyguard coverage wherever I went and a vest that I wore. Explain to people that don't remember that time, why, why were people so upset? Why were they calling it with death threats? Well, the draft was something very important. Number one, it was a war for starters. It was a war we had no place being in, none. Number two, we weren't defending our borders like we did in World War I or World War II. I mean, it wasn't there at all. So it became a very polarizing method of debate, Robert. And they were just mad because you were talking about this guy that everybody yeah, was mad at. because I had the stones to come up there and say, hey, this is BS. This is wrong. That's where the hatred towards me came from on that subject. And I know Earl was really excited to meet Ali. Oh. But yeah, tell about that. Earl came up with a great line. Here they are, shadow boxing in the parking lot at the old Oilers training facility. And Earl comes up with this great line. The champ says, look at me, look at how pretty I am, wearing these $1,000 custom-made shirts and you know clothes and shoes. He said, look at, how, look at all them foxes sitting there in my limo. And he said, what are you other than just a football player? And Earl pivots and says, champ, you were used to be. I remember when you could move. <laughs> and that term used to be, I borrowed and used on so many occasions. But it was a pretty heady experience to see how all of these great athletes hovered around him like a little kid. I mean, it was it was just truly an amazing situation. Yeah, the power of Ali, the power of Joe Namath, some guys that, I mean, just amazing to be around those guys. And speaking of Earl Campbell, what would he do for your son? Because this was a great story when, when he went to Oilers training camp. Every training camp, Earl would take my son Brent and he would spend the night in Earl's room. Earl would would take my son out for ice cream. And then they'd come back to the dorm and he said, Brent, this is the smell of marijuana. Don't you ever, ever smoke a joint in your life. Nothing good comes out. And words to this day are prophetic. Brent, who's a doctor in Wichita Falls, Texas, has never, ever smoked a weed. Occasionally will drink a beer. All right. So Earl is connected to somebody else that you met and befriended. And he is the most, for me, unforgettable broadcaster in sports history, not named Barry Warner. And he happened to call Earl's most famous game. And it's ironic. As soon as my high school advisor found out that I wanted to be a sports broadcaster, Barry, he'd always call me the next Howard Cosell. 
So I, I want to ask you, what's your favorite Howard Cosell story from the time you spent with him? Hello again, everyone. This is Howard Cosell. Howard was a journalist who covered the who, what, why, when, and where. And in those days, everything was just vanilla. Howard brought a different dimension. Howard and Earl hooked up a wonderful friendship. And whenever he saw Earl, he'd start singing, Houston, I was, Houston, I was, you know, and, and that was a unique bond. So, you know, there was a banquet for Heisman winners in New York. Howard introduced everybody and gave them you know, a 30-second intro, and he introduces Earl, and he goes, Houston Oilers, Houston Oilers, you know, with that Brooklyn staccato accent. And that was a bond that the two of them had. But Howard was bipolar and never was the clothes for it or treated. I've seen Howard when he was a kind, gentle, empathetic soul, and I saw Howard when he went out of his way to be a jerk, to be a total ass, because he was Howard Cosell. He hated wearing that canary yellow blazer. But when he went to the city of the game, he would take that blazer and never wear anything else. Yeah, you tell in the book also that you used to he used to bring his uh, his stuff that he needed for his toupee when you picked him up at the airport acetone acetone was a flammable substance banned by the airlines this is long before 9-11 so with that being in mind you simply had to go to the drugstore and get a fresh bottle of acetone when he came to town to take the adhesive off of that god-awful rug that he wore you also got to know Nolan Ryan over the years, and people might not know, Barry, he was a prankster. Can you tell the Mike Scott story? Do you remember that one? Oh, yeah. When they would go on the road, Nolan would have the rookies take matches from the discos and the clubs that they went to and put them in Scotty's pocket of his coat. So he'd get home, and his wife would go rip shit because Scotty was not a player. Good family man. He just, <laughs> but, but the rookies did. He goes, yeah, well, the rookies didn't do this. And he goes, but Nolan, front him up to it. And you don't say no to Nolan. And she got it on the phone and she called Nolan. <laughs> <laughs> did, no, did Nolan own up to it on the phone? Of course he did. Yeah, yeah. One of the great players and just real characters from those early Astros teams, and we're going way back now to the 60s, was Rusty Staub. And, and you became friends with Staub. Right. What, do you, what, what can you tell us about that? Well, I got hooked up with Rusty first week I was in town. I had followed Rusty's career because he was the most talked about athlete baseball-wise for two years prior. And you saw him on all the newsreels. Ted Williams came to try to recruit him. And he was a he was a hot shot mate long before the draft. So lo and behold, the Astros sign him. I get introduced to him at, at you know by the team dentist was my dentist. Ended up 
becoming great friends. And Rusty lacked speed, but had a outstanding arm, great set of eyes, fielded his position by taking angles, which leads me to during the offseason, we played racquetball. And in those days, I was like an A minus minus B plus plus tournament rated player. So the first two, three times that we played, Rusty kind of got the feel of it until he got to the point where he studied the angles like a NASA engineer. And from that day forward, I never beat him again. His hand-eye coordination was extraordinary. So once he figured that dynamic out, I was toast. He was also a food connoisseur, too, a chef. He had a specially built apartment, a townhouse, I should say, that he paid an extra $15,000, $20,000 to have custom-made ranges put in the apartment. Wow. Custom refrigerator and freezer. So a dinner party at Rusty's was better than going to a five-star restaurant. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people know that about about him. And I want to go to another guy from the Rockets now and, and another era of Houston sports because the Rockets come to town after the Astros get started in the, in the 70s and Rudy T comes to town and, and you start up a friendship with Rudy. And the story that just uh, really amazed me was Rudy gets hit in the famous Kermit Washington punch and everybody remembers that. But you were there sort of helping Rudy get back on his horse a little bit after the punch, right? Right. So after uh, he was operated on, Rudy calls me one day and he goes, meet me at Memorial Park in an hour. I said, great. So we go to Memorial Park and we start fast walking. We do that three times, you know, during the course of the week. Then the next week he said, Let's do a light job. So we did a light job. It was supposed to have been a mile and a half instead of the 3.1 that was on the circuit. So we did that for another week. And then the following week, week number three, he said, bring your tennis racket and a couple of cans of balls. We're going to hit. So I dutifully get the my tennis racket and the balls and we go to Memorial Park and we start hitting Monday, Wednesday, and then Friday in the middle of the set, Rudy, who's at the back line, hits me a shot to the opposite court. Well, I race over there, pick my racket up and and I treated it almost like a racquetball shot. I just lunged out and hit towards the middle of the net. Well, in two steps, Rudy went from the back line just to the net, and I hit him, and the ball just grazed his his face. And I go, drop my record. Oh, Rudy, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And he goes, I don't want your sympathy, you blankety-blank, blank, blank, blank. Get your bald ass back there. It's your serve. When that happened, I knew unequivocally Rudy was back. I called his wife's wife, Sophie, when I got home. 
The rest was history. He became the first man in the NBA the following season ever to wear a mask. Then goes on to fulfill his playing career, making the all-star team twice after that, and then quitting and going into scouting and then coaching. What's your biggest memory from those championship years? The joy and exaltation that the city of Houston demonstrated to the country that you can have a erstwhile celebration without fires, without looting, without turning cars over that we can have a peaceful, wonderful celebration. And if you remember, there were no cars, no fires, no riots. It was like Woodstock without the drugs. I mean, it was so peaceful and loving and sharing. Yeah, it was It was unreal. I don't know if people that you know, weren't here at that time, understand what a big deal it was because Houston had been through all these years of disappointment and they, you know, almost winning this championship and that championship, obviously going back to five slam a jam and what happened with Valvano and love you blue and et cetera, et cetera. So it was such a special time. And there are so many incredible memories that you have in, in the book, Barry. And, you know, I really encourage everybody to go out and get it again. It's off the top of my bald head and you know, I, I, I would love to do this again with you sometime. And Absolutely. You've got my number. And I always enjoy when we uh, we can get together and conversate over our mutual love for sports. Yeah. Th- thanks so much for writing the book. And thanks so much for doing it. And, and really appreciate you ha- coming on the show with me, Barry. Off the top of my bald head dot com. Fantastic. That's the website. Thanks so much and continued success. Look forward to another visit. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Hey, you can support the show by subscribing on YouTube and commenting on the videos. Listen to Houston Sports Talk on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, and Google. Don't forget to tell a friend and share our show on social media. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.